Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I am so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's definitely gonna break up with you. She's definitely gonna break up with me. Should've used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. We'll jump right into it. My first question I wanted to ask you is basically why, like why this, what made you decide this is how you wanted to spend your life? <laughs> I don't know that I have decided that this is how I want to spend my life, but it's definitely a really fun way to go about making a living. I never expected that it would turn into such a big thing. It was just a childhood ambition of mine to catch one ball and I got hooked at the age of 12. And I just kept doing it and doing it, and it kept getting bigger and crazier to the point that I have been able to basically carve a career out of it. It's still hard to believe. And how many baseballs have you caught total, including home run balls, batting practice, foul balls? The grand total is 10,670. Jesus. And growing up, obviously, you did this. What do your parents think of it today? Well, my dad is no longer alive, but he definitely appreciated it when he was uh, one of my big regrets is that he didn't live long enough to see the whole YouTube thing blow up for me because I know he would have loved that. As for my mom, it took her a long time to come around, uh, but she she really appreciates sort of the magnitude of it and just how much fun it is and how many people I'm able to reach with my videos and all the writing that I've done. And She was definitely concerned for me during my adolescent years. So I just didn't really have any friends or any other interests and it wasn't really clear, I think, if I was striving toward anything in particular. And I certainly didn't know it at the time. I was just having fun. So it's pretty fortunate that it's turned into this thing. And my mom loves to go to games with me maybe once every season or two. You know, she's pretty busy, not a huge fan, but she just loves to enter my world for a bit and also check it out. Well, that's awesome. And sorry about your dad. I didn't know that. But um, you've written multiple books. So I'm sure you've explained this in your books. Do you have certain strategies on how to catch balls at games, given all stadiums have their own unique dimensions? I have various strategies for every different stadium that I go to. And certainly a big part of it is how deep it is to the outfield walls. But also the temperature and the wind, and that can affect how fly balls carry or how they die how crowded it is, how security is strict or lenient depending on the venue, if there are righties or lefties pitching or batting, if they're power hitters, if they're slap hitters. So all of these things definitely come into play, and I try to take everything into account. It's kind of like my own game within the game. Right. So out of all the balls you've caught, I mean, like you said, over 10,000 of them, what are your top five favorite balls you've ever caught going from five to one? specific list like that, I can definitely, hmm, well, from five to one, 
I'd have to say that maybe the first Grand Slam that I ever got was super exciting. Maybe that would be number five. That was hit by Robinson Cano in 2009 at Yankee Stadium. Uh, probably, I would say a Derek Jeter home run that I caught in 2012. Career hit number 3,262. Then I might go with Barry Bonds, number 724 of his career. Then probably Mike Trout's first career home run. That's a good one. Oh, man, I was going to say A-Rod's 3,000 hit, but that that basically fills up my five, and really my all-time favorite is the last home run that the Mets ever hit at Shea Stadium. So I kind of miscounted a bit, but <laughs> that, that gives you an idea of some of the top few that I've gotten for sure. Yeah, those are a lot of good baseballs. And you have your own YouTube page. You've got thousands of subscribers. What um, exactly are your off-seasons like without baseball? Do you have another job? Do you just hang out with your friends? What's an off-season like for Zach Campbell? You know, it keeps changing by the year as my career has taken shape and continued to evolve. Now I'm doing baseball stuff full-time, if not going to games. This season, this off-season, for example, I'm overhauling my website, which is so outdated and embarrassing and ugly that I don't even <laughs> want to talk about it. So that's that's turning into a big project. I'm trying to get a line of merchandise going. Um, I'm also uh, kind of looking for other video people to work with moving forward. That's going to be a project of mine to find people. And yeah, I, I'm still trying to pump out maybe a video or two per week, working on something right now connected to the charity that I fundraise for, doing Q&A videos throughout the off-season, did my first mean comments and tweets video, and some other things in the works. I want to show off some of my collectibles that people have left comments asking to see. So lots of plans for videos. And, yeah, I, I see tons of friends during the off-season. I actually just finished working out right before I jumped on the call with you. So just eating healthier, exercising more, very, very social, going out on some dates, seeing families. That's just kind of what I get into in the off-season. ALDS Game 3, 2017, it was Yankees-Indians. I was in the stands with my brother. We watched Francisco Lindor hit a long fly ball to right field that Aaron Judge ended up reaching over the wall for, catching it, robbing him of a two-run homer. And I didn't realize till later that night when I watched the replay, you came inches away from catching that uh, potential home run ball. Did you think you were going to catch that Francisco Lindor ball before the 6-8 Aaron Judge snagged it away from you? You know, when Lindor first connected... I thought, wow, that's coming right to me, and it's pretty deep, but I think it's going to fall short. Then when it reached the top of the arc, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be a home run, and I'm going to catch this thing. And I'd never gotten a postseason home run before. And I drifted down to the front row, and there's a camera well right behind the wall that for some reason that night there was no TV camera there. So it was just like a little extra space that I had to work with. So I was just kind of standing in that camera well as the ball was coming right at me, and I realized as it was descending that whether or not it was going to be a home run was very close. And I just told myself, don't interfere, don't interfere, don't interfere, don't interfere, don't interfere. As the ball kept coming, I didn't want to be in the center of a Steve Bartman-like firestorm. Oh, of course not. And sure enough, the ball came down. It looked like it was going to clear the outfield wall by a foot or two. 
and Aaron Judge had disappeared from sight, so I knew that he was right below me, right against the wall, and I figured he was going to make an attempt at it. So I stuck my glove out where the ball would have gone, and it would have been a home run, and sure enough, Judge jumped up, his glove came out of nowhere, and he caught that thing, I mean, probably less than a foot in front of my glove, so... On a personal level, that was extremely frustrating and disappointing because I don't have a favorite team. So I always want to catch any baseball. I don't care who hits it. Obviously, for the Indians, it was heartbreaking. For the Yankees, it was amazing. And I've heard about it from fans on both sides. Indians fans were like, you should have reached over and caught it. We would have won the series. And, I mean, Yankee fans have told me, you know, good job for not interfering. And if you had... You know, you would never have been able to show your face in Yankee Stadium again after that, which I think is true. So, you know, I, I love being part of the game and catching baseballs that fly out of the field of play, but I don't want to insert myself into the game where I actually change the outcome. That's where I draw the line. But what a crazy, crazy moment. Yeah, and honestly, if you had reached out and caught that ball, the Indians would have won the series. The Yankees only won that game one nothing. That would have been a two-run shot. would have changed the entire postseason around. And yeah, it's, it's crazy to think about the fact that I potentially single-handedly could have ended the Yankees' season, which is not uh, a responsibility that I want heaped upon my shoulders. You know, if I'm a major league player and I rob them of a home run and it ends their season, well, that's great. But a fan has no business doing that. And I really, you know, they obviously would have gone to instant replay. They would have looked at a side angle. They would have determined that the ball was going over the wall. And then they would have had to determine if Aaron Judge would have caught it. And at the time, I I assumed that they would not have made that assumption because you really can't do that. But then in this most recent postseason with Mookie Betts in Houston, he jumped and was going to catch one and the fans knocked it loose. And they did rule that as uh, I forget how they, they ruled yeah, it. Yeah, it was a catch. That, they would have, that he would have caught it, right. So it's umpires are... I guess you can't really predict, but there is a chance that I could have ended the Yankees' season if I had reached out and made a chest-high catch in front of Aaron Judge's glove, and I'm so glad that I didn't. You know, I, I really respect the game, and I, like I said, I don't want to do anything that changes the outcome of it since I'm a fan and not actually out there on the field. And since you live in New York, that probably wouldn't bode well for you in the end anyway. No. Uh, <laughs> so you said that... That could have or would have been your first professional home run ball. Did you go to any games this postseason? Is that still the case that you haven't caught any postseason balls yet? Still no postseason home runs, which is just killing me at this point. It's sort of like, you know, I got this monkey on my back. I got to get one. Although it really wasn't until a few years ago that I even started trying to get home runs in the postseason. You know, now Major League Baseball uses a commemorative ball in the postseason. For many years they didn't, and if you go back even farther they they did used to for a few years in the late 90s so a lot of times when i'm at postseason games rather than sitting in the outfield and trying to catch a home run i'm sitting closer to the action trying to get a toss-up or a foul ball so i can get that commemorative baseball for my collection so you know even still it's not a total priority but it's definitely something that i want to do and the yankees are so good right now that it seems like they're going to be probably regular participants in the postseason and, of course, it's really easy to hit home runs in that stadium. So if I keep going enough, they have to hit one eventually. And if Francisco Lindor had hit that ball maybe 18 inches farther, I definitely would have caught it. So you've been 
well, obviously you've been to every stadium, you've caught thousands of baseballs. What out of every baseball you've ever caught is the most unorthodox or unlikely way you've ever caught or received a baseball from someone? You know, I've thought about this a lot, and I actually have an answer for this. And it's really, it's really strange. And if people aren't too familiar with the layout, they might have a tough time visualizing it. But Shea Stadium, the Mets' old ballpark, had very few seats in fair territory in the main part of the stadium. They had a bleachers section out in left center, but you really couldn't get out there because it was reserved for groups, and sometimes it just went completely unsold. So the seats in the main part of the stadium just barely hooked around the foul pole, maybe about 40 feet or so. So for a home run to be hit where you could catch it, it, you really had to pull it down the line. So I was up in the second deck, the loge level, the blue seats, all the way out in the very corner spot past the foul pole. And I think it was Siyoshi Shinjo who hit a batting practice home run kind of right at me, but it just didn't quite hook back toward me enough down the left field line. So I reached out as far as I could out of the stands. Basically, if you look straight down, the bullpen is down below you. The ball tipped off the very edge of my glove, but it didn't even really deflect much or change direction. So it continued on its trajectory, cleared the bullpen, and landed in this open-air sort of walkway all the way down at street level that connected the main part of the stadium to the bleachers, but it was meant as like an employee walkway where the vendors would cart food back and forth. So, And I saw the ball sitting there right out in the open, but tucked up against a side wall, and employees were walking right past it, and nobody even saw it. So I went all the way down, and there was a guard sitting on a chair, like reading a newspaper, not even looking up at people going past him. And so I, I just walked right past him into this employee area, and he never even noticed me. Like, this is basically how the Mets run things. It's just right. total chaos. Total chaos. Um, and I walked right out there, went and picked up the ball, walked right back past this guard. He never saw me, didn't care. Great security. Um, but that's really the weirdest way that I ever got a ball that I can remember. Yeah. Shows a lot about how the Mets run things, or at least how they used to run things. So... A little bit about the Mets. They just brought in Brody Van Wagenen as their general manager. Says he plans to win now with what he's got. Going to keep DeGrom, keep Syndergaard. What do you think of the Mets' move bringing in this guy who has no GM experience and says he plans to win now? And if he does plan to win now, who do they think that they could potentially sign in the offseason? I don't really like this move a whole lot. Um, You know, the Mets are... The Mets make a lot of questionable decisions. And this is definitely one way to shake things up. I don't know that shaking things up for the sake of shaking things up is the way to get things done. This guy was an agent. He obviously has an impressive set of skills evaluating players. But if that's the case, then why aren't more agents becoming general managers? So, look, I'll still give him a chance before I hurl any insults his way, but it's it's definitely kind of a head-scratching move. The Mets definitely have enough pitching. I think they got to go out and get some guys who can hit and stay healthy. You know, Cespedes was supposed to be their guy, but he can't stay on the field. And, I don't know, just some of their guys are a bit old. Michael Conforto needs to become the superstar that they want him to become. So, the Mets are close, but they just can't really seem to stay healthy and put it together and be consistent. 
and it's becoming a really tough division. We'll see where Bryce Harper goes. If he stays in D.C., what the Nats are going to do. They, the Nationals, of course, are supposed to be good every year. Suddenly the Braves are really good. The Phillies are getting better. So the Waltz are going to say, oh, we're going to win right now at the Mets. It's a tough division, and they still have some work to do. So I can definitely see them being a 500 team and making a run at the wild card, but I don't see them walking away with this division, even if they do go out and make a big free agent signing. Right, and of course they're the middleman in that division with the Phillies and Braves, and you always got to question whether or not that they can actually go through with their promises as they've had one winning season in the last decade. But who knows? Um, The biggest topic of discussion the past 24 hours, at least in my world, is Shohei Otani winning the American League Rookie of the Year, and I can't help but ask myself why Miguel Andahar didn't win it, and the fact that it wasn't even close is astonishing to me. Who do you personally think should have won the AL Rookie of the Year, Shohei Otani or Miguel Andahar? Um, I think I would have given it to Otani. Um, simply, I think what puts him over the edge for me is that he hits and he pitches. And right. that's uh, a once-a-century type of skill right there. And it's not like he's pretty good at both or like good at one and bad at the other. He's an all-star caliber hitter and pitcher. And I understand that he played right around the same number of games that Acuna played in the National League. So for people saying that, oh, well, Tony didn't play enough, he doesn't deserve it, that's not true. Andujar had a phenomenal season. And I think if he were picked, you'd hear people arguing about it, but you'd hear a lot of people saying, well, he should have been. I mean, just a tremendous, tremendous season. And I think uh, he just didn't have this weird scenario of a Babe Ruth-type player coming in and doing what he did then, sure, I would have given it to Andy Hart. All right, my, my buddy's an Angel fan. I was arguing with him. He's like, yeah, Otani hit over 280, 20-plus bombs. So I'm like, well, he also played 50 games less than Andahar. Andahar hit 297 with 28 bombs in a pennant race. So it's a little questionable. I mean, I see why they picked him, given that he's the two-way sensation that he is. But as a Yankee fan, it's a little uh, discrediting. Um, I Stardom that I think really makes him stand out. Even though he had the lesser stats, I think that alone just propels him for me. Next question: Favorite baseball player of all time? Cal Ripken Jr. I was a shortstop growing up, and although I'm not big and imposing now as an adult man, I was kind of big for my age when I was 14, 15. A little bulky to be playing shortstop, not the quickest player. But it was like, you know, Cal Ripken is big and he can play shortstop. So that inspired me to stick with it. And I just loved his attitude and his work ethic and his consistency. And, um, yeah, he was always the guy that I looked up to. And here's another top five, five to one question for you. Since you've been to every stadium, what are your top five favorite stadiums, five to one? Asking me five to one than <laughs> asking me one to five. Well, five to one builds it up for the first one. Going from five to one builds you up for the number one spot. Yeah. Changes by the month because I I judge places on how much fun I personally have and how many baseballs I can catch and that that can change if a team goes from last place to first place it's going to be crowded it's not going to be fun anymore if a place used to open two and a half hours early for batting practice like City Field and then they shave half an hour off and kind of screw all the fans and now they only open two hours early well that suddenly makes that place a lot less fun so you know. 
my answer changes, but I think right now, I don't know, maybe I would put uh, Citizens Bank Park in Philly at number five, Kansas City, Kauffman Stadium at number four. Um, let's do Cincinnati, Great American Ballpark at number three. Globe Life Park, Arlington, Texas, number two, and Camden Yards in Baltimore, number one. All right, Camden Yards. I like Camden Yards. All-time favorite stadium. Now, is this just because easier to catch balls or just the overall feel of the parks? Both, really. It just has the loveliest atmosphere. It's the ultimate example of how less is more. Right. And sure, they built it 25 years ago before all these architectural firms were putting in all these features that people don't even need in stadiums. So it's a very plain sort of bare bones facility with a lot of exposed brick and stuff like that. It just has a very nice look and charming feel to it. I love how there are walkways all over the place, standing room areas. You can really move around well. Security is pretty chill. They used to be a lot friendlier 10 to 15 years ago. Now they've crack down on some things. It makes it a little less pleasant, but it's still a great place overall. And, yeah, it's it's my number one stadium. I actually feel like maybe Tiger Stadium, the old ballpark in Detroit, might be my number one all-time if I could go anywhere. But Camden Yards right now, I think, is, is as good as it gets. And have you made any uh, international trips, like to Japan, Mexico, Puerto Rico? Yes, just this past season I was in Puerto Rico in April, and Mexico in May for the regular season MLB series. In 2014, I was at the Sydney Cricket Ground in Australia for the MLB opening series. That was the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks. In 2012, I was at the Tokyo Dome for the Mariners and Athletics. And I'm already pondering next season. You know, opening the opening series is going to be back in Japan. I've already been to that stadium, so I don't have that much motivation to go back to the Tokyo Dome, but I wasn't doing YouTube videos then, so I'm inclined to go back over there and film it. And I have a bunch of friends who are also making that trip, so I, I may end up going. I'm definitely leaning toward going to London at the end of June for the Yankees and Red Sox. Right. But no, nothing is booked. Nothing is on the calendar. I don't even know what I'm doing this weekend. <laughs> people are asking me about next summer, so I really have no idea. Okay, yeah, that big Yankee Red Sox series, I'd even consider going to that. So we'll see what happens there. Um, you've done many interviews in your life, ESPN. Uh, I saw Conan O'Brien. What was the best interview you've ever done? Before I ask you the worst interview I've ever done, because I did a little research on that. I want to get in on that interview. But what was the best interview you've ever done? Probably NPR back in 2006 when my second book, Watching Baseball Smarter, came out. NPR tapes things in a studio, so of course the sound quality is top-notch. And of course I'm so articulate and well-spoken that I would never mess up. Never. I'm joking. But <laughs> one thing they do is, is of course they'll edit stuff, so if you pause or if you say um or uh, they can snip that right out. So it was a very smart interview. I was talking about that book and a lot of the, the topics in it. And so really wasn't talking about catching baseballs at all, but really being a student of the game and helping people to understand it and giving specific examples of some things throughout baseball history that are interesting. And I was I was just sort of very 
calm and collected. I had my NPR voice going. The interviewer had clearly read the book uh, and asked very informed questions, and they treated me like an expert, which I am, and they were very respectful, and it was just, it was a great interview, and it was like half an hour on national NPR, and it propelled my book up into the top 10 on Amazon just for an hour or two, because the sales rankings are always shifting every hour, but for a moment, I was actually ahead of one of the Harry Potter books, just for, like, you could blink your eye. And <laughs> there so you go. That, that was definitely the best interview as far as me enjoying it, coming across well, and having it really have a big effect on my career and my writing and livelihood. It was just like everything came together all at that one moment. And the worst interview you've ever done. Oh, well, you already mentioned his name a couple minutes ago, <laughs> Conan O'Brien. You didn't like him? When he was hosting that. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that I helped contribute to the demise of his show because he was a first-class prick. Record and said a thousand times. I've never been treated so badly by any host on any show, and I've hung up on radio hosts who were not as rude to me as Conan was. But when you're on stage on The Tonight Show, you don't just get up and walk away. But he was so insulting and had absolutely no interest in anything that I had to say. And I understand it's late-night TV and you make fun of people, but... You also have to just shut the hell up at one point and let your guest have a word or two. And when he kept cutting me off, when I even tried to talk about my charity work, after his producer had promised me that Conan would ask me about my charity work, I was I was furious. And I don't know that you can tell that by watching the interview, but he really, really sucked. And... Uh, yeah, I officially hate Conan O'Brien. And that was strictly all uh, on-screen stuff, like the questions he was asking you, not any, like, behind-the-scenes stuff? Like, did you no, talk to him? No, I didn't interact with him at all, other than what was up on stage there. You know, for a moment before the segment started and for a moment afterwards. But, yeah, he was just... He was awful. I didn't even realize it at the time so much, but just going back and watching it, and it, it he was bad. He's... He, he's an example of someone who doesn't deserve to be as famous as he is because he, you know, I was I was on Jay Leno a year earlier and Leno can be funny without being jackass but Conan is sort of like Conan is like the bully at school that has to put you down in order to get laughs and I just, I can't stand people like that in my personal life and he just gave off this really icky vibe so, you know, let everybody you know, checking out this interview right here be aware of the fact that Conan sucks. <laughs> Hear that, everybody. Conan O'Brien, not the go-to uh, late-night show host. So nope. watch someone else. <laughs> so we've talked about it many times, caught over 10,000 baseballs. Most baseballs you've ever gotten in one game. 36 in one game in Cincinnati on my birthday in 2011. Well, there you go. It's a good birthday. Um, just a few more questions here. You've written multiple books. Tell me a little bit about your latest book in 2014, The Art of the Snag, which is a fan's guide to catching Major League Baseballs. Sure. So that book is actually a portion of my book called The Baseball, which came out in 2011. And the final third of The Baseball is called How to Snag Major League Baseballs. And that was the name of my very first book, which came out in 99. So, quick recap. Wrote a book in 99, teaching people how to catch balls. 
I basically revised and rewrote that whole thing and made that the final third of my book, The Baseball in 2011, and then the publisher was like, hey, we should just take that final third portion, teaching people how to snag baseballs, and send it back out there into the world as an ebook. So that's basically how that came to be. And the story of The Art of the Snag is really a story of my first book ever, which was after my freshman year in college, when I was 19, my dad, who was a writer, suggested that I write a book. I had a job lined up that fell through for the summer, and my parents were not the kind of folks that would just let me sit around doing nothing, so it was like, well, what are you going to do with yourself? So my dad helped me outline a book, and I ended up writing it, and it got sent there, out there into the world, and got rejected a lot at first, but finally got picked up by Simon & Schuster, and that kind of put me on the map, I guess, just as far as being a baseball person that people were aware of, and everything kind of built from there, so, you know, that's that's sort of the, the roundabout story of that book. And I know Conan didn't ask you about it, but I'm going to ask you about it since these things are important to talk about. Your charity called Pitching for Baseball. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> You're already a much nicer guy than Conan O'Brien with much better interviewing skills. So before the, before the 2009 season got underway, I decided that I wanted to do something charitable with my collection and notoriety in the baseball world. And I had this idea of joining forces with the charity and getting people to pledge money for all the balls that I catch over the course of a season, and then that money would basically add up and, and go to the charity at the end. And I was in touch with a few different charities and finally picked Pitch In for Baseball and what they do is they provide baseball and softball equipment to underserved children and communities all over the world. They basically help kids get out there and play ball who otherwise would not be able to. So I think it's a great cause. And I've actually done a fundraiser for them every year starting in 2009. So this is the 10th year that I've done it. And I've raised over $200,000 uh, 150,000 of which came from the New York Yankees in exchange for A-Rod's 3,000 hit baseball. So I've had a lot of help along the way and just lots of generous people out there. And it feels great to have made a difference in the baseball community, which I think also translates into the world at large. You know, kids, they need a, an outlet to get exercise and to participate in positive activities and it's not just about baseball and softball, but it's about life and exercise and making friends and team building and all that stuff. So it's a pretty cool thing to be able to get behind. Oh, especially that's awesome. The I guess two more questions I have to ask you. The first being, again, you like sporad or sporadically like started doing this and became a big thing. Did you ever think you'd blow up the way you did in becoming like the American ball hawk? I never thought that this would happen. I thought it was possible, but I didn't really see the path toward doing it. I thought that I was going to have to get on TV somehow or be a columnist for a national publication, but basically work for some big media outlet. I didn't think that I could basically self-generate the whole thing, which I've done on YouTube, again, with 
help along the way from people who've advised me and videographers that I've worked with and people who've had some great ideas and have helped a lot. But um, I, I always knew that this could become really big. Back when I was writing a blog starting in 2005 and just how much that took off. And it's just, it's like a lot of things. It's like, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are really, really good at what they do, but they just don't have a big enough audience or there's just not enough people who are aware of them or who have come across their work, whether they're actors or artists or musicians or chefs or, you know, maybe there's like a great doctor or massage therapist who's great at healing people, but they just aren't able to get the word out. And if people only knew, they'd be huge. And I kind of, I kind of sense that that could be my situation. That just if, if more people were aware of me, they'd really appreciate what I could do. And, and, you know, after all these years, YouTube kind of became the platform for me that enabled me to get myself out there more and reach a bigger audience. And it's super exciting. I, again, I never expected it. I never was trying to become famous or to make money, but once I realized that there was a possibility to do this as a career, rather than, you know, stuff that I'd been doing for many years, which really didn't excite me, I, I obviously pursued it. The last question before I let you go, you got into it a little bit how the Yankees gave you 150000 for your donation for the A-Rod uh, 3000 tip ball. Tell me the story of catching A-Rod's 3,000th hit and going through that whole two-week period where you initially decided not to give it back and then eventually reached the deal with the Yankees and meeting A-Rod in front of the press. That was so crazy, and you know I could tell this story and make it last an hour, but I'll try to give you the, the one-minute version. Uh, June 19, 2015, A-Rod sent his 3,000th hit flying out my way in right field, and... I was lucky enough to come up with the ball. I didn't even catch it on the fly. It just rattled around and, you know, just, it's really amazing when I think back to how I came up with it. I was immediately surrounded by security and they whisked me off to the lowest level of the stadium below the stands to the, you know, to the office of the head of Yankee security and he congratulated me and started offering me a whole bunch of stuff in exchange for the ball and I told him thanks I appreciate that but there's really nothing that you guys can offer me that would be worth more to me than the ball itself so I'm going to keep it and I wasn't trying to be a dick about it I just really wanted the ball and you know that the story just got out there in the media that I was holding out and being rude and wasn't going to give A-Rod the ball and it I just really wasn't thinking about it too much at that point um I just I wanted the ball, or I at least wanted to take the ball home with me that night and think about it before I just gave it right back or or decided I was going to sell it. Like, whatever it was, I just wanted to think about it. And Charity came up pretty quickly in the conversation. I actually met with Randy Levine, the Yankees president, the night that I got the ball, and that's when he first suggested a charitable donation. And I realized pretty quickly that that's actually what I wanted to do. So it took a few days to work out a deal between the Yankees and the Charity, and by the time a deal was in place, the Yankees had left New York on an eight-day road trip. So I couldn't have given the ball back at that point. And so that's why the baseball ended up in my possession for two weeks. It could have been as little as, you know, five or six days. But the Yankees were gone. And they wanted, obviously, me to hand the ball directly to A-Rod at a press conference. 
and the Yankees told me not to say anything about it. They wanted to announce it. And so I was just getting kind of beat up by the media all that while people were, people just assumed that I wasn't going to give it back and that I was being greedy. And the whole time I knew that I was going to give it back for nothing except money for charity. So it was a pretty stressful time in my life. It was fun, definitely being in the center of it all. But yeah, it was, it was so, there was so much negativity and it was so stressful for a while that I even questioned if I would have picked up that baseball if I had it to do all over again. And I saw it there sitting on the ground like I did. So, you know, ultimately I'm glad, but that was definitely the craziest two weeks of my life. And what was your original plan with it? I mean, given it was a very historic baseball, were you going to sell it or just keep it in your collection? My initial thought was I'm going to just keep this ball. And it's just going to be something that I will look at and cherish every single day. And every fan, every friend that I ever come across who wants to see it, you know, I was, I think it, you know, it was going to reach a lot of people. Um, but it was always going to remain in my possession or in my family's possession. That's, that's really what I wanted. Um, but I realized that it just had a lot more potential to be back in A-Rod's possession and it could do more good for the world if I gave it up for the charity. So, you know, I did that. And I, I also realized that just even keeping the baseball might have posed a safety risk just to have anything that valuable in your home and for everybody to know that it's in your home kind of would have a target on my back a little bit. People might have just also been angry that I still had the ball. And I don't know, I just, I didn't really want the stress and the scrutiny and, and I realized I could do something nice at the same time. So it just, it really became a no-brainer for me actually pretty quickly in the process that I wanted to do something charitable. Just sort of like the whole Aaron Judge robbing me thing, Francis Golendor almost hitting the postseason home run. I just, it's like, I want to be involved in these things, but up to a certain point. And it was just, it was too much, and I really just kind of wanted to move on from it. And, and really, the, the best part of the whole A-Rod thing was the experience of going through that. And the physical ball itself would be nice to have, but that wasn't the most important thing. So that's... That was kind of my thought process um, behind that whole crazy scenario in my life. Well, Zach, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with me. I'm glad after months of back-and-forth emails we were able to do this. Well, thank you. Thanks for being patient with me. It's hard to do anything during the season, so catching me this time of year is definitely a little bit easier. I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's definitely going to break up with you. He's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Dude. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said... TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.